You are listening to the Apex Hour, hosted by Ryan Paul on KSUU Thunder 91.1. This show allows more personal time with our guests, allowing them to give us their stories and opinions. We will also give you new music to listen to, hoping you enjoy some new sounds and genres. Welcome to this episode of the Apex Hour. Welcome to the Apex Radio Hour. I'm producer Faith Christensen. I'm joined with Apex Director and Professor of History Ryan Paul and our special guests Charles Holt and Gerald C. Rivers. I'm turning it over to you, Ryan. Thank you, Faith. We are so happy to have these two amazing gentlemen with us today. Uh, Charles Holt and Gerald Rivers, welcome to, to Southern Utah University. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And both of these gentlemen uh, performed a, uh, a performance piece, is that what you would call it? Um, uh, called Martin and Music, uh, with uh, the words of Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, the music of the Civil Rights Movement. So what I always like to start with is kind of a how we get to now question. So why don't we start with you, Gerald. Will you just briefly tell us, you know, who you are, how you got here, not how you got to Cedar City, but how you, how you got here, and then we'll move on to you, Charles. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Compton. I always had the desire to be an actor. Got my first degree from Los Angeles City College before going on to Morehouse College in Atlanta, which is where Dr. King went to school. I worked in regional theater, toured for a while, and uh, came back to L.A., I make a living mostly in voiceover now, something some people may be familiar with, some maybe not. And uh, Charles and I went to church together. We were at the Agape International Spiritual Center under the direction of uh, Dr. Michael Beckwith. And um, I had the chance to speak, and Charles had the chance to sing at various occasions. And uh, one day, I think I approached him and asked him to go with me somewhere. And um, I asked several musicians, artists, to travel with me and lift the words of Dr. King. But Charles Holt was the first one who came back and said, now I want to invite you somewhere. And so uh, he had this idea, and we literally sat in my living room and wrote Martin in Music in one day Mm -hmm. and uh, began touring. I think we started the tour in Boston about a decade ago. And uh, we didn't go out as much during COVID, but it looks like we're back on the road again. We just left San Francisco. We're happy to be here. And we're headed to uh, Northridge, California, and then Lubbock, Texas next. Home of the Texas Tech. Yes, we'll mm-hmm. visit Texas Tech. Buddy Holly country. Yeah. Right. Charles, what about you? I was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee, in a small uh, all-black community that was founded in 1868 by a missionary. So I'm technically, I would say, fifth generation. It's my grandparents and great-grandparents. and uh, Grew up um, typical, you know, typical southern boy in a neighborhood full of kids and uh, especially boys. And so I I gravitated towards sports because if you didn't, you'd get beat up. I mean, you, you you really would. So, you know, things like acting and singing and dancing, those, there was a fine line between what boys should do and what boys shouldn't do. So I said, let me stay on the, uh, uh, on the side of athletics. And I actually love sports. I went to college on a football scholarship. And then after I graduated, I started working in corporate America. And I found out that that was not my strongest suit, pun intended. So, um, I left and I remember, while I was in corporate America, I would find these places to do open mic. And so I'd go to these open mic mics and sing. And then one night this gentleman said, hey, um, when when you sing, the room changes. And by the way, have you ever done musical theater? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm a football player. We don't do musical theater. It was just the silliest thing now that I think back on it. But it was just something that I was blind to. Well, I did jump into theater and uh, then I went to New York and um, did Jesus Christ Superstar with Ted Neely and Carl Anderson and did some uh, did Smokey Joe's Cafe. And then I did Lion King. And, I, I, you know, the more I think about it, wow, what a great training from some of the most impressionable artists that I've ever performed with. Then I moved from New York to Los Angeles. And as Gerald mentioned, uh, we met at Agape International Spiritual Center, and he invited me to come out and just 
be the musical inspiration while he uh, while he lifted the the voice of Dr. Martin Luther King through these through these messages, and I just said, yeah, no, we've been on this for such a long time now, because we still think that the messages are so relevant, that the music is so powerful and uplifting, and uh, this is what we'll continue to do. So we're really glad to be here at Southern Utah University, and 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 yeah, that's it. So why do you suppose? That is. Why do you suppose the words of Dr. King and others are so relevant today? I think someone mentioned in our discussion earlier that, that one of the things that makes them so powerful is that they could have been said five minutes ago. Right? They're not, they're not gr- grounded or rooted in some kind of historical context, although that's important, but they are so present. Hmm. They... they are relevant and they remain relevant and poignant because they are true. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned in a philosophy course some time ago that there were man-made laws and there were spiritual laws. And man-made laws can be changed. Like you can change the speed limit from 65 to 75 or 75 to 80 in some places. Spiritual laws are true then, now, and forevermore. The idea that we are truly all connected is a spiritual truth. It will never dissipate. It will never go away. Mm-hmm. And uh, King, I think, tapped into something because somebody asked. He drew uh, inspiration from Gandhi and from Thoreau and from uh, Benjamin Mays and a host of other people that came before him. And then now we're drawing inspiration and adding him to the list but if it's true, if it's spiritually true, it's true forever. I think that's a, a really interesting, interesting point about we we have this idea of of who Dr. King was, but mm-hmm. oftentimes we don't talk about becoming Dr. King. Like mm-hmm. like how did he get to be where he was? Right. I mean, it, it, he could have been preaching at any other church other than. Than the Montgomery, you know, 16th Street Baptist Church, and, and led the bus boycott. He could have been somewhere else. It's like events surrounded him to put him where he needed to be. I think that there are many factors that caused him. You used an interesting word, become, and surrender is one of those words that comes to mind when you have those types of things going on. But I'm sure that doctors, Dr. Martin Luther King had a, had a stronger intention. He had a stronger vision. So something has to give in there when you know that you're doing your life's work. But these things are coming. So in order to have this larger force, and I think he would call it God, to have that type of uh, guidance, I think there is a surrender in there. A surrender to, hey, I have my vision, I have my agenda, I have these things that I would like to see happen, but I surrender to the higher will of humanity. And that's that's wh- why I'm here. That's the becoming. And I can speak to that as an individual, as a singer. It's not what necessarily what I take from the, the page today and deliver. It's how those words inform who I am and what I'm becoming and what else I need to let go of. Yeah, I, I think that I, I'm interested in, we often reference Dr. King in the terms, of course, of, of civil rights and what what many would say equality, which is a, a kind of a charged word mm-hmm. and, and means something different to, to every person. But we talk about Dr. King in the sense of his space in the African-American civil rights movement. But but you mentioned earlier today that that's not where he was grounded, right? He saw his mission was bigger. A couple of things a lot of people don't know, but his given name at birth was not Martin Luther King. His given name at birth was Michael, and he was called by his family members ML and he had a brother who was called by his initials AD and when Martin Luther King as a boy as a child found out who Martin Luther was being the person who taxed his 95 theses on the door at the Church of Wittenberg and helping to reform uh, theology for many people as we know it 
that was part of who he wanted to be. So he changed his name and got his father to do the same thing. His father was not born Martin Luther King Sr. His father was born Michael as well. And so I think there were seeds that were planted. I think he came in pre-wired. I think there was stuff that he knew he wanted to do. There's a story of him having a white playmate across the street. So Dr. King, for his time, came from a relatively well-off family. Um, His dad was a preacher. His granddad was a preacher. They owned a house. His mom didn't have to work. She stayed home and took care of the kids. And for that time, that was a good living. But they literally lived directly across the street from row houses and factory workers. And he found a friend in these row houses and was later informed that they could no longer play together because He was black and the boy was white. And I think it raised a question for King that didn't make sense in terms of the answer. And I think part of that began the journey. There's another story, and I won't go on too long. When his daughter was six years old, she wanted to go to Funtown or the amusement park. I think that's probably gone on to become Six Flags now over Georgia. And she would ride with him to the airport when he was going around to speak and talk about civil rights and equality and segregation. And and she wanted to go. And the idea that he had to explain to her why she couldn't go. And just like when he was a child, I'm sure something in him said, this doesn't just doesn't make sense. There's nothing logical inside of this in terms of our humanity. So I think those things helped push him to become who he was. And I think it was no accident that he wound up at Dexter Avenue and 16th Street and ultimately back at uh, Ebenezer. I think it was all in divine, perfect order to put him, and I think this is true for all of us, whether we know it or not, we're often put in the place for our greatest potential for growth. And he took advantage of those opportunities when they were presented to him. So what what were you both taught as children about Dr. King? I It's interesting because we were afraid of Martin Luther King uh, uh, because his name evoked such an emotional, almost visceral response from anyone. My grandmother, if you talked about Martin, she would just go, oh, Lord, Dr. King, Dr. And when Dr. King died, I'm born in 1965. He dies in 1968. I still have trauma from my family feeling this sense of loss as if it were a member of our family. People were crying. People were mourning. It was really deep and intense. And my grandmother, more than my mom, both of my grandmothers, just talked about what a great man he was and what an example he was and what he fought for. And again, it wasn't just about race. He gives a speech where he says, you should just be the best that you can be, period. He says, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the way the world is made. It's called the interrelated structure of reality. And I think, uh, Learning more about him as I grew older, his experience at Morehouse, his experience at Crozer Theological Seminary School, his experience at Boston University, all of those things informed. My grandmother wanted us to know he graduated high school at 15 years old, (laughs) that he skipped grades, that he caught up with his sister, who was a few Mm -hmm. years older than him, which she was not happy about. But what an example that was, particularly in the day and age in which we live, where We don't have those kind of examples anymore. Like, here's somebody to look up to, and here's somebody to model after. Now it's it's just get by. And King talks about, we used to want to get it done, and now we just want to get by. And he was a person who didn't take shortcuts, according to my family. He was somebody who worked hard, stood up for what he believed in, and he fought for other people. What about you, Charles? He was uh, he was the great example to us. I grew up in Nashville, and so my grandmother used to talk about they would call him King. My mother said, "You know, old King, he was he was something else, and you should be like him." Go and read that. I have a dream speech. So I ended up 
And when I was in junior high school, I used to compete, and I would do the I Have a Dream speech. And it would make my grandmother so happy. But when he passed, there was, there was this, there was almost this, like, some air had been let out of the balloon because they depended on his leadership mm -hmm. so much that when he was assassinated, I think my grandmother, when she talked about his assassination, she would put her head down. And my grandmother never really did that. She she never showed too much emotion. But she would put her head down and say, mm, Lord have mercy, they killed a good one. They killed a good one, a good one. But we, but he left us with his example, mm -hmm. and so that's what we carry forth now in teaching. Uh, when I was in in church, they would say, "Now, Dr. King would teach us mm -hmm. this. How would he do this? What would he say about this situation, class?" So there was this extension of his life that was vibrant and it was alive. Uh, especially in the South. You know, one of the things that's always fascinated me about, about the history of the movement is this uh, th that it is very generational, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, I have in my mind this this image, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the march after James Meredith is shot mm -hmm. that, that they march for, for to, to to wherever. I can't remember. That. It's, you know what I'm talking about, right? That was Mississippi. Right, and there's a scene where... It's Dr. King and Stokely Carmichael mm -hmm. marching. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. And there's a reporter in the middle and, and having this kind of almost debate with this reporter on either side. And, and of course, Stokely, Stokely Carmichael in that, that same march will coin the term black power. And, and I find that very interesting as you talk about growing up where what would Dr. King do in the environment when you're growing up when it was very much for for the youth of that generation, mm -hmm. black power, right? This idea of we have waited long enough that that, that is. And, and the moment Dr. King dies, it's, you know, there was the one person that we were peaceful for, and you just killed him. Um, that, that black power, uh, that's actually coined by a gentleman named Willie Ricks, who helped to establish the Black Panther Party as a political party. I believe it was in Alabama, and it caught on. Didn't necessarily come from Stokely Car Carmichael, but it caught on. And I think there needed to be a balance. Not all of us are the same. Not all of us approach situations or solving problems in the same way. And I think having this kind of cudgel that you could say, we want to do it peacefully, but if not, I'm not going to be able to hold these people back forever. Ultimately, we want the same thing. We want our dignity. We want our humanity. We want some level. I think equality becomes a tricky word. I don't know if we can ever be equal, but I think we can be fair. And maybe I don't need as much as someone else, but I should be able to have what I need if someone else has. There's a quote that says, if my little cup can hold but a pint and yours a quart, wouldn't it be mean of you to not let me have my little half measure full? The idea that we're we're competing, but we have different needs, and right. so people make different choices. And um, I don't know if that's – it might be a little generational because before that, I think black people operated with a lot of fear particularly during and after Reconstruction, when violence was being inflicted upon them, fear was we were being terrorized. And I know that's hard for some people to hear, but that get, literally gets into our DNA. So if you have slave women who are forced to watch brutal beatings so that that adrenaline literally goes into the fetus or an unborn child, that child is born with a certain amount of fear. Mm. And I think King's boldness in some ways gave them the courage to say, wait a minute, we can have what we deserve. We can have what we need. And some of the young people came up responding differently. I think it's that way today. I think you have some people who are like, I need to maintain my own inner peace. I want there to be change. I'm not going to be non-action. I just want to do it non-violently. Mm -hmm. King says it allows us to achieve moral ends through moral means. But you can only move so slow before people will say enough, and they are prepared to try other methods to try and achieve 
said goals. But I, I think we, we need we need people who are strong and we need people who are peaceful. Ideally, we would have the same in one individual, but it doesn't always happen that way. I agree with Gerald because um, I would often ask my mother, and I asked her this question several times, but the first time I asked her, um, I said, Mommy, do you think desegregation of the schools helped us, black people, or hurt us? And she said, it hurt you. I remember my brother being one of the first classes at an all-white high school, and they had race riots almost every day to the point where the police had to come out. My brother's friend was uh, stabbed after a gentleman took a, a beer bottle and broke it and just stabbed him all in his head and his neck. He nearly died. And I think at that point, this was mid-50s, when this was happening, particularly with my brother's generation, I believe they said, I'm tired of nonviolent action by Martin Luther King. I respect him, but we've got to do something different because they don't want us near them and this whole thing is pushing us into the throes of being harmed so yeah yep not all of them did and there was a point i think that things just broke and they said not enough enough it's amazing how beautiful and wonderful the american promise is but how hard and difficult it is to, in, to, to have that reality. King would say, just be true to what you said on paper. Like you wrote it down. You wrote it down as an edict, as a statement, as your mission statement, as the thing that would launch the... And we know it is still the great experiment. No other place in the world... You go other places and they they look culturally alike and you know what country you're in or what region you're in based on the language they speak and based on the food that they eat and based on the way that they look. This remains a unique experiment and it is delicate. But I think King profoundly speaks to it. He says, never before in the history of the world or since has a socio-political document expressed in such profound eloquent and unequivocal language the dignity and the worth of human personality and he says and yet we've scarred this dream we've we've turned it into a nightmare at times mm -hmm. because we wrote it and we said it but we're not sure we're able or want to uphold it yeah those words at the same time are inspirational and aspirational but for who Right, and it should be for all of us. But, mm -hmm. but I mean, that's what it well, that's is. The, that's the thing. Yeah, that's who that that goes back to the intention. Everything, anything that you build has an intention, and so when you when even when you spiral out and you think, oh my goodness, I've gotten away from what I intended or the vision that I have, you can always go back to the center of the intention, and that's the question that I would have for the people who wrote those notes. Who did you intend this for? Mm -hmm. Who was this intended for? Was it intended just for you and the people who look like you? Because I know the preamble of, con the, preamble of the Constitution. You know, those words, there's one word in there, and it means for the generations after me, the generations after me, and it's beautiful. But who was the preamble written for? Who was the Constitution written for? For the benefit of who? I'd have a whole lot of questions. Yeah, we we have a, a big discussion about that in my... We should invite you to my history class. <laughs> oh, you should. Your questions. <laughs> so let's... Uh, I, I, we'll take our first break, but when we come back, I want to talk about the the music of the movement mm -hmm. and how how inextricably connected it was to what was going on then and to the life of Dr. King. Mm -hmm. So as, as those of you who've listened to us before know, we ask our guests to, to choose some songs and, and that are relevant to them and... And uh, the first one we have is a song called I Am. It was written by, by Brenda Lee Eager, and it's performed by, by you, Charles Holt. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yes. So, Charles, do you want to tell us a little bit very quickly about the song and what we're going to hear? Well, um, when, I, when I moved to Los Angeles, I had uh, an experience. I'm a tree hugger, and there was a tree that was standing right, right, right 
near me. I was getting ready to eat, and I was I was on the outside deck, and it was in the middle of summer, and there was this wind. It wasn't a strong wind. It came through, and all of those leaves shook on the tree, so much so that it got my 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 attention. And I looked over and I asked the tree. I said, "Are you waving at me?" And I said, "You must be waving at me because another another small breeze came through." And I remembered being back in the South, where I never said this, but I knew it inside of me. Everything is connected. Like Gerald said, we're connected to every living thing. And my grandmother said that. And that is part of what King was trying to say, too, is that we're all connected. All living things are connected. So when I sat down and told her this story, we started a writing. And she's brilliant. All right. So let's talk about music and the movement, right? And maybe, Charles, you could kind of lead us off with this idea of of why music was so relevant to the movement. Well, music has music and storytelling always went hand in hand, especially I always use the South, but especially the South, because your grandparents and your uncles and the man down the street or the the gentleman who lived right next to you, they would often tell you these stories. You could hear these stories, but there was music infused into those stories. Or they'd sing a song and say, I remember when we were just coming up and we'd sit down and come up with a song and yeah, man, that's why we came up. You want to listen a little bit? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And, you know, they would sit down, and it you could tell it meant something to them. It was a part of their life that was so important. And they wanted you to understand because they wanted you to know a part of them. Music makes us feel, and music, when we allow and surrender to the chords not just the chords of the structures of the music the musical instruments and then we add the tone the vocal tone and the vibration that vibration that comes with every ah everybody has a vibration everybody has that so when you put all of that together that creates a force with you who are amongst and it creates a force in the universe and so it was important to have music with the movement. So those kind of experiences, the, the music connects us and binds us in a way that sometimes otherwise we wouldn't have. Yeah, and it uplifted them. So sometimes it's just down, defeated. Can we? Can we? We're not going to be able to have the meeting tonight. It's been called off. Or I would think in King's time there would be, there would have been times that it would have been too dangerous. Mm-hmm. To have meetings. So what do you do? Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. So then that song becomes that message for the evening. And it penetrates the soul. And you go home and you say, I know we didn't have the meeting. But honey, baby doll, I ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. And it's felt. So you're not alone. It's this thing where it's like this huge essence of life. It's a life force. So yeah, that that was that was definitely part of it. You know, and in, in, uh, I, I think it's interesting listening to to both you and 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 Gerald in, in this dichotomy of words and music. That and 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 I think that someone asked a question at our me- previous meeting about you know versions of Dr. King and and books and and movies and and Gerald had said, well, you know, his speeches are all recorded, right? I mean. Not all of them, but they're there. They're either on YouTube or, mm-hmm. you know, Barry Gordy recorded the, you sure know, all these other ones. And, and you can hear them. And hearing Dr. King, there is a cadence there that mm. is musical. It is. And I don't know if that's, you know, in my faith tradition, that's not how we talk at the pulpit. Although, heaven, I wish that we did. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I think that that's inspiring in the same way. Is that... It comes from an African oral tradition. It comes from bringing the story to life. And if that involves or includes music or a musicality, but but really it comes from a spiritual infusion. So they aren't making up these cadences as they go. There's something that's going on that they're hearing. And I'd like to say sometimes 
we don't just want to hear what they're saying. We want to hear what Dr. King is hearing. And sometimes that cadence helps us get into whatever it is that he's tapped into that has made it musical and expire, inspiring and alive. But this idea of uh, uh, a storyteller or the person who keeps the, the oral tradition alive and has an interaction with the community, with the audience, with the listener, with the tribe, so that musicality is in there as a griot mm -hmm. to leave room for other people to have an inflection or an infusion or a contribution. And it creates, that's why in the black church, the minister will preach for a while and all of a sudden the the organist or the pianist will feel or hear that cadence that he's in and can start to put something go, go, I mean and then they're having this almost jazz riff that's very impromptu that they're having this exchange but that means that the organist is now tapped into that mm -hmm. cadence that rhythm and he knows that the audience or the members or the congregation is tapped into that cadence and I think they they still teach them how to do that, but the good ones, it is innate. It is something that is in them. Mm -hmm. and, and King talked about how important the music was because he would get down and he would need musical inspiration. And the story goes that he would literally call Mahalia Jackson in the middle of the night and say, I'm feeling down. Will you sing to me? And she would get up out of bed and sing. Mm. It's one of his favorite songs. And then he'd be like, okay, I can go sleep now. I can go back to bed. And then somehow you would hear that cadence or that infusion of the music that inspired him just to be able to go to sleep. Now he's so grateful for it. When he speaks, we can almost hear her Mm -hmm. singing through him. So that's my question, really. That, that's, I'd heard that story before, and it reminds me of the, the story that you, or the, the, the sermon you had given today with Dr. King about the cup of coffee. Right? Mm -hmm. Something needs to give me peace in the middle of the night. And he was not connected with Mahalia Jackson at that point. No, was, he was not. It was coffee and God. But I, I think that, is that a, a common religious experience in the black church they're coming from here, like I, that. Most people in the civil rights movement were connected in some faith tradition in some way, or is that a, a an African cultural tradition that it came from comes slavery? From an or? African cultural tradition in slavery that was somehow maintained during slavery. So when the the ministers that were black and enslaved, when they were allowed to hold church. Even if they couldn't read, they could sing, and they could mm -hmm. teach others to sing. And just what Charles was talking about, it uplifted them. They were like, we may not be able to read the Bible, but we can sing a Bible story. And then they found ways to infuse other messages into those songs so that when you hear them singing, you think they're just having church, but they're having a political activist activation that is taking place and they're communicating ideas we're back to we're not listening to what they're saying or what they're seeing we're hearing what they're hearing we're tapped into this this melodic vibration that is ever present anyway and that's how even working mm, that could start something yeah and then there's that call and response yes the call and response is definitely uh, a way that they communicated even when they were in places where they felt where they had to be separate, where they couldn't be together, mm -hmm. maybe sometimes it worked. And so the, it, it would go, you know, somebody would start, mm-hmm, 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 So that infusion, it happens in the Baptist church where the, where the, the, the pastor would say, and such and such and such and such, I, this and this and this and this, and then the organ goes, no, no. and then that is a call and response. Yes, it, it is. It is a form of call and response. And then the people out in the audience, you say, and you know, and they say, yeah, mm -hmm. that's a response that, that comes from, come on up. We used to say, come on up, tell us the story. We want to hear more. And it's it's uh, it's 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 delicious. It's quite delicious because you feel the essence of that all coming together for that message. And the 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 the, the brilliant part of it is everybody gets an opportunity to experience 
and to participate. Here, here. Everyone gets to go to church. Everybody yes. gets to go to church. So if you sit there and just do this, just rock, your body, there's something about the rock of your body. You might not say, mm-hmm, but your body is, now sister over here may be going, mm-hmm. And they, they're, they're harmonizing without yes. training. Absolutely. <laughs> they really are. Mm-hmm. And we know that it comes from Africa because when you think about uh, South Africa and the apartheid movement, you just see a video. Of them in the street, whoa, whoa, and they, they and mm-hmm. they're not angry in those moments. Right, they're smiling. They're like we're all together. We're all singing this, mm-hmm. and you can feel it. It's literally electric being passed from it one is. person to another, and that's an incredible inspiration to a black preacher, because Ooh. you have a good choir. Sometimes you don't even have to preach the sermon. You don't because the choir can sing in such a way that touches those people and opens up their heart and lifts their spirits in such a way that we just need to let that resonate, let mm-hmm. that rest with them for a minute before we say anything because everybody in the room can feel it. Mm-hmm. The preacher might be up talking and you might pick up on this line and Sister Clara picks up on the other one and Brother Johnson picks up on the other one. When they start singing, everybody's in there for the whole thing. You can't help but be. And And one more thing. The music opens you up. Mm-hmm. So it opens you up to receive here, here. the message. So it's it's a it's it's a connectivity, Absolutely. a spiritual connectivity yeah. that 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 links that, that exists not just in the sanctuary or the chapel, but that exists six other days a week. Yes. That's the point, yes. right? Is that you come out of there remembering and feeling those experiences, and when you sing those songs, those feelings come back, and and it it, it and it carries you until you can get that back in that space again. Yeah, the and King space. talked about when they would be in jail, and sometimes the kids would be in jail, and they would just start singing. Like who had ever heard it? We're all going to jail tonight. We're going to start singing on the paddy wagon on the ride to the jail. And we're going to sing once we get there and we're going to keep singing. And King would say he could look through the bars and see how those songs and the words to those songs began to soften the hearts of some of the jailers. They would look and they would just be like, oh my, it sounds so good mm-hmm. and it feels so good. How could this be bad or wrong? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Because it's not. It's not. So the real question I have before we go to our next break is, you talked about the lady in your church when you were a kid who would get up and say, I'm going to sing. Are you going to yes. sing with me? Did people sing with her? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Once she, once she said, there, is a, there, there was a call. So in the church that I was talking about uh, is an apostolic. Once she says, praise the Lord, saints. Praise the Lord. It meant all of you all, we are on one accord right now. And I'm the leader of this show. So if I say, well, you say, well, I say, well, well, and you just go along with it because what we're taught is once if she gets joy, I get joy. Here, here. It's a lesson we can learn, right, Faith? You can say, you can talk, actually, you know. Okay. All right. So let's take our next break. Uh, move in. This is, uh, this is another song. It shows I Forgive Me. This mm-hmm. was written by Tim McAfee Lewis uh, and it's performed by you, Charles Holt. Can mm-hmm. you tell us very quickly about that? This, this song was written by Tim McAfee Lewis. He was in service. He was in a church service, and he was listening to uh, Dr. Dr. Michael Beckwith. And Dr. Michael Beckwith, his message just gave Tim McAfee Lewis impulse to write these, write these, uh, these words down. But basically... What it comes back to is that all forgiveness is self-forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That we can give, we can forgive, <clears throat> we can forgive others. We can forgive our parents, our siblings, whoever we think has has done something. Whoever we think has, but at the end of the day, we get to forgive ourselves and give ourselves grace. So obviously, Dr. King was prolific in his in his sermons and in his letters and, and speaking and and the the music of the movement was was uh, the same right i mean there were lots of various songs i mean there are a few that we can like oh these are these are the ones mm-hmm. but it was you know very a lot of spirituals and things like that so my question is when when both of you decide in in your living room gerald that mm-hmm. we're going to do this and you said you wrote it in a night how how did you decide what 
what songs and what sermons to use. And I, I preface this, I, well, I guess I don't preface this, I, I continue by saying we talked about this, that everyone in that audience, you know, we're going to hear the words of Dr. King, we're waiting for the greatest hits. We're waiting for I have a dream, mm-hmm. content of your character, <laughs> waiting for, you know, I may not get there with you, you know, those kinds of things. But those weren't there. They were not. So how did you choose? Um, A couple of things. When I was so grateful to uh, my brother Charles Holt when he said, let's do something. And and we did not have attachment to the outcome when we got started. We were both open to, as artists and as spiritual beings, as to how this might unfold and what the best and the greatest good would be, not just for us, but for the people who are going to have this experience. So to begin with, we didn't go in with any preconceived notion. we got to do this, and we're not going to do this one. We sat there, and we both sort of threw some things out and had some contributions. And then part of what came up by being open, by surrendering, was the idea that so many people saw King as this great, strong, brave, courageous leader. And I felt like it was important that they know that he had some vulnerability that there were times when he was afraid. There were times when he was concerned because if he was afraid and could do the work anyway, that means we could be afraid and do the work anyway as well. I like to say that you don't have to be uh, charismatic, but you do have to care. And you don't have to do everything, but you can do something. And that, that one, it was the first time I heard him in all the speeches that I know, and there are literally dozens where he was saying, I was weak, I was faltering, I was losing my courage. And I just felt like it was important for people to hear that and in the same speech to say, in spite of all that, in spite of all the things that were going on, in spite of the fact that people were threatening my life and my children and the people that I love, because this is the part we miss, King was not popular in his time. There were a lot of people who did not like or want to hear what he had to say, but he had to say it anyway. But the idea that he would say, I'm getting criticism even from black people, but I've got to keep saying this, with the idea being, even though you're afraid, even though there are people who are criticizing you, when you have a truth, like the Bible says, it's like a fire shut up in your bones, and you have to tell it. Mm -hmm. It's like when the Spirit of the Lord is upon you, Who can but prophesy? You have to say something. You have to tell people about what's going on inside of you. I think you will burst yourself. And then the the last one that you guys heard today, the drum major instinct. Charles liked to tell me, go get them, Gerald. Because they want to hear, I have a dream, and black children and white children holding hands together. What happens with most people when they hear that, they become nostalgic. And they start reciting the words with me and most of them haven't even really listened to what the words are they just say them out loud there's a line in there where he says they're asking when will we be satisfied he says we will never be satisfied until the negro is no longer the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality we could be Mm -hmm. talking about that today so no he's not satisfied but I, I, we didn't need to do the dream. We needed to do you can be vulnerable and still be great. And then even though you can be great, keep that ego in check, that you can help somebody, mm-hmm. that you can do something for somebody other than yourself. That was important for us. And for those who like to say, well, I don't have any ego, I think it was important that King point out, yes, you do. Yes, you do. You like it when people say good things about you. Who doesn't? Even if you don't believe it and even if you don't deserve it. And even if it's not true, the only time people have a hard time with praise is when that praise is going too much towards somebody else. And I think King has a way of saying things like that that make us own it, make us smile inside a little bit and go, yeah, well, I guess I would like to be important. I would like to be recognized. I would like to be significant. And um, It's very self-reflective. Yes, it is. The story behind that is... uh, on the monument in Washington, D.C., and I went out there for the grand opening, they had to change the side of it because they thought, oh, this sounds a bit egoic the way that they cut it to say, 
um, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. And the family came in and said, make sure you make the point of what he was saying. Mm -hmm. Not just that I'm a drum major, but that I'm doing this for somebody other than me. Mm -hmm. That's what makes you great. Mm -hmm. So my my last question for Charles it really is this. Is this a artistic collaboration or is this a spiritual collaboration between you and, and Gerald or is it both? Artists, artistry is spiritual. That's what it is to both of us because um, when I thought about it, I didn't think about the art, although I knew that it was an, an artistic endeavor. I thought about the people who needed to hear it. I needed to hear it. I needed to hear it again. And I knew that everybody who heard it would find some a, a place in them that resonated with with something, with 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 something. Maybe the music, maybe the message, maybe the message and the music. Because to me, they're all they're they're all the same. So, uh, yeah, it it all artistry to me is spiritual because there comes a time in the. Uh, how can I say this? So when I'm learning a new song, and I'll just take this for example. When I'm learning a new song, I learn all the words. I sit down with the accompanist. I go over it with the band. I don't like to have too many rehearsals because there's no such thing to me as perfection. There is the perfected, meaning that once you have learned what you have what you're supposed to learn once you put excellence in first gear and you show up then whatever it is that needs to be expanded and experienced comes to me comes to the band comes to Gerald it comes to us first before it goes through us and as it goes through us we surrender because it's no longer us at that time is something working through us the choice is taken away it's that's what we really describe as discernment there's nothing else left that mm -hmm. is what we're supposed to do mm -hmm. and i and i know you got to wrap this up but i think he said something profound in that we put together a show that we needed to hear that we needed to see mm -hmm. that we needed to experience and if other people are resonating with it it is an indication that we have more in common than we have that separates us. Mm. People who don't look like us, people who didn't grow up like we did, can see this show and still walk away with something, and so can we. Amen. Amen. Uh, amen, oh. yeah. <laughs> so let's take our last song. This is A Place at the Table, mm -hmm. written by uh, Brenda Lee Eager and performed by you, Charles Holt. Do you have mm -hmm. anything you want to say about this? Yeah, this is in dedication to my grandmother. My grandmother told me, we, we lived in an all-black neighborhood, and on the outs outskirts, there were late oceans moving in, and I had something to say about it. And my grandmother, before I could say anything, she said, you be quiet, shut your mouth. They trying to uh, do the best, just like we're trying to do the best. Why do you think you can tell somebody to move into your neighborhood? You don't have the right to do that. And it taught me a very valuable lesson about inclusion myself you know what i'm saying I know so now it's like hey hey welcome changed my whole tune but it took that from my grandmother you don't have a right to tell them wh where and how many they can have in their house go somewhere and sit down now those are the types of things that we got from our elders mm -hmm. when we were growing up the reprimands but they reprimand, reprimand, reprimanded us in love, and then they knew that seed would carry us forward. They knew it. This is our, our final segment that we, we always enjoy asking in, in all of our, our discussions. And uh, we'll start with you, Charles. So, Charles Holt, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? Well, I'll tell you, the faces of... The audiences is bringing me life and joy being on the stage with Gerald. Gerald, when he does his speeches, uh, there's a time that I close my eyes and there's a current of energy. It feels like it's on the stage itself. 
it's like it's under my feet and when he finishes the song that i'm tuned up and ready to sing i can hardly get it out so i have to just have to breathe have you ever just been so joyful and happy about something it's like let me tell it let me tell it slow down slow down so i have to tell myself charles breathe but i'm getting ready to sing until times get better and that that in itself gives me joy but being with the people and seeing the faces yeah that brings me joy so that's my book that i'm reading Mm -hmm. that's that's all of that thank you Mm -hmm. all right uh gerald c rivers what are you currently watching reading listening to or playing that is bringing you joy i um i play and teach west african djembe or hand drumming to young people and uh, some of these kids were with us in san francisco and there is a song called Kakilambe, and it comes from West Africa, I believe from the Guinea people, and it is the rhythm of the forest deity. And it's got several different movements that all come together and converge perfectly. And there are lyrics to the song, but we're, we're rarely if ever seeing the lyrics. But the music itself has several movements. First, it's it's the the recognition that the forest deity is kind of like Mother Nature, but that it is all powerful and that we're all connected. And then it's like we see it and we get to celebrate inside of it. And then we're having this big dance. And then it just goes, it keeps building on itself. And the rhythm just goes, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's being played. But when it's played well, that has all of this other stuff going on. And that piece is almost lost. It's buried in there. So you have to really listen and hear because it's it's a reminder that this joy of being connected is ever present. It is Kakilambe, the mm. rhythm of the forest deity from the Guinea people on African Djembe. Kakilambe. Kakilambe. Thank you. Faith Christensen, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? So I thought about that quite a bit this week, and it was interesting as I had the opportunity to go to St. George to fill out some paperwork. But on my drive, I was pondering of what brings me joy and on the way down i was feeling really peaceful and grateful for the land that we're blessed with here in utah it's really diverse there's many different colors and it was just a peaceful moment but uh later as i thought more i'm like you know what that doesn't bring me joy because eventually i'm going to get tired of driving my back's going to start hurting somebody's going to maybe cut me off but i thought about it more as recent experiences as i'm really thankful for forgiveness Mm. and It's just interesting, not going into detail too much about it, but forgiveness isn't the pardoning of behavior, but letting go of that anger and frustration and disappointment. So that's something that's brought me joy a lot recently. Yeah. What about you, Ryan? What brings you joy with what you're reading, watching, you know, your question? Mine's not as deep, but uh, I'm reading a, a wonderful little book by Japanese author Suzuki Natsukawa, Uh, called The Cat Who Saved Books. Hmm. And it's about a young boy whose grandfather owns an old bookshop. The grandfather passes away, and this boy figures out, is working with the books that he loves, and a cat shows up and takes him on a journey to where he has to actually go and save books that are being maligned and destroyed by other people. It's a Hmm. beautiful little book that I've really been enjoying the last few days. So... I would like to thank uh, Charles Holt and Gerald Rivers for your for being here on the Apex Eccles Apex Radio Hour, and as we go out, uh, I we're going to play the song that we referenced earlier, uh, one of Dr. King's favorites, uh, "Take My Hand, Precious Lord," mm. by Mahalia Jackson. Wow. Thank you all thank you. for listening, and thank you for being here, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>